What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Dominic Chu in for Kelly Evans today, and here's what's ahead on The Exchange. The tech trade has had a major run this year, but with Loretta Mester echoing James Bullard's comments in support of more rate hikes, the Nasdaq is underperforming today. So is it time to take profits in that tech trade? Not so fast, according to one market historian. And speaking of the Fed, Private payrolls and ISM services data, including a leading indicator for wages, both coming in weaker than expected today. This all ahead of Friday's big jobs report. So is Barry Sternlich's serious recession prediction closer to coming true? Or can the Fed nail the soft landing for the economy? We will discuss that. Plus, one area of the services trade that's not seeing price softening is travel. But one analyst is seeing signs of slowing demand there as well. We'll have the names to watch in the industry, but first we'll start with today's markets. And right now we are drifting towards those session lows. So as we kind of take a look at what things are shaping up to be, it's a red day across the board. And right now the S&P is down about 25 points. That's the low of the session. It's been generally to the downside. We were kind of down one at the highs, down 25, as you can see here at the lows of the session right now for the S&P. We are now below the 4,100 mark. 4,074 is the trade for the S&P 500. The Dow Industrial is 33,395, just about flat on the session, outperforming. Meanwhile, it's that tech-heavier NASDAQ composite trade. That's off 1.5%, 183 points for the composite, 11,942, the level there. If you look at the way sectors are playing out today, there is a very much defensive tilt towards the markets. The ones that are outperforming in the green today, not a shock, utilities, healthcare stocks and consumer staples are the outperforming sectors on the day. Meanwhile, technology and consumer discretionary that house some of the big names in tech and tech-related type companies are the real underperformers. And then if you're looking for an extreme underperformer, a reminder that there is still stress in the regional banking system and that sentiment there is still decidedly negative. Western Alliance Bank was one of those banks that got caught up in the Silicon Valley Bank failure, a ripple effect that hit a lot of those West Coast banks. Now, Western Alliance is down 17% today because they actually provided an update on their financial situation ahead of earnings reports coming out in two weeks. However, what they declined to disclose was the total number of deposits that they had, something that they have updated in the past in the wake of SVB's collapse. That's leading to some questions among investors and analysts about just what that means for the deposit base at Western Alliance. That's leading to that 17% decline there. So keep an eye on regional banks, especially the ones that have been hit hardest in that SVB failure scenario. Now let's turn to the tech trade. The Nasdaq down about a percent and a half or so today. So is the end of the recent bull run in play? Not necessarily, says one of our next guests. He says the technicals are starting to look actually constructive for technology. Joining me now is David Harden, CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Summit Global Investments. Jeff Hirsch, also with us. He's on the phone, Editor-in-Chief of the Stock Traders Almanac. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you both for being here right now. Uh, David, we'll start with you. This technology trade has been the driving force behind the rally that we've seen. No doubt about it. Why is it that this trade is still very much a focus and can that rally continue? 
Yeah, I think I think one of the things is that this magnificent seven, if we want to call Apple, Nvidia, Microsoft, uh, Meta, Tesla, Amazon, etc., these individual companies are doing very, very well. And so, from a tech perspective, even though we're we're rather defensively playing right now, and we're a defensive manager or we're a risk manager, reality is is this trade probably continues, and this breather is probably good for those stocks if you look at them long term. I don't think we're going to get the prices we had in some of these individual names that we had back in December. So overall, I, you know, I'm defensive on the market. I'm a little cautious on the Fed, but I'm I'm positive on this area. So it, it, th- there is the kind of bigger case and the story around it. Uh, Jeff Hirsch, yep. w- you, you've studied this for a long time. You and your father both with regard yep. to seasonality and trends in the marketplace right now. It, can you tell us we've heard a lot of stories about how April is good for the stock market. But how are the charts lining up? Is it validating some of that historical seasonality positively for the month of April? It is validating that. I mean, remember, we're in this sweet spot of the four-year cycle. Uh, we've been bullish since you know, last October. But uh, NASDAQ, you know, it, the QQQ, the NDX in a new bull market pretty much up about 23.4% from December low to the March close is still a little bit behind the sweet spot averages. So a lot of the headwinds and obstacles out there are, are keeping that back. But uh, April across the board, very strong. Technically, um, things are looking really, really sharp and, and really supportive over the last few weeks, but there's still some work to do. You know, here it is, April, great month across the board, but last month of the best six months, we're starting to think, uh, you know, time to do a little spring cleaning, uh, look at the portfolio, be a little more cautious. We're bullish for the, for the year, but um, we're six months, uh, can be can be troublesome, especially in a pre-election year with a debt crisis uh, looming over the market that no one's really, talk, really talking about right now. So uh, we have some gains here. We're looking to capitalize on that. But uh, moving into uh, you know the end of April and into May June, we're going to start looking to rotate and, and uh, tighten up stops and, and clean out some underperformers in the portfolio. All right. Speaking of positioning right now, David, there, there's a case to be made that you should be doing a little bit of at least fine tuning. If you're hypersensitive to some of these risk factors that are out there, whether it be interest rates, the Fed, a banking crisis possibly bubbling up again, what exactly is the tilt right now? Is it towards those defensive stocks that are outperforming today? I, I highlighted utilities, healthcare, and staples all outperforming today's trade. I think you do have to have a tilt in your portfolio. There's no doubt that we've had zero capitulation. The Fed is still out there. You name some of the other risk factors that are out there. The market. Um, is in the, you know, it's really not completed the bear market trade. So I think you have to give attention to some of these macro factors that are going to impact the market. And you have to have, I think, some weights in your portfolio overweighting some of these areas, whether you get that through a, a defensive manager or an ETF that like what we manage, or whether you get that through your individual positions and stocks. I think that's very vital in the portfolio today for investors. So, David, uh, let me follow up then. What stocks are there in your portfolio that you are allocating to clients right now to play out that defensive trade that you're that you're laying out? I think there's two ways to go about it. One is positioning into some stocks like we mentioned some. I'll give you one, for example, is into it. High quality earnier earnings, superior margins. Any stocks that you're looking at beating on the top and the bottom lines, they provide constructive outlooks. They should have an increased chance of outperforming their peers in the months ahead. 
Having said that, one of the better ways to go through your portfolio, and I like um, you know, what was said, do some spring cleaning. There is a lot of stocks that are, quite frankly, not worth owning. They have too much risk. The idiosyncratic risk or company-specific risk of these stocks are not worth it. So, for example, if you're owning a Southwest Airlines, for example, Southwest Airlines, oil's going up. We know that. They've had problems multiple times in the year. There's better options out there. These are some of the stocks you want to get rid of or reduce in your portfolio. Intel, for example, had some great returns or above average returns year to date. But let's just face it. It has a potential dividend cut. It has negative free cash flow. There's other stocks that are better options out there. So I like to say, fine, hold their core position. Have the S&P 500 but minus the positions that are risky to your portfolio. Okay, and, and Jeff, we're going to give you the last word here. If you take a look at well, the charts, what exactly yep. would you be into right now or where would you want to stay away from? We're already in utilities. Utilities have a seasonal uh, strength, you know, bullish season from March to October. That's something we got into down near the lows. That's something that's in the portfolio. You know, with rates where they are coming up on the worst six months, bonds, T-bills, that might not be a horrible place to park some cash. We'll be right out some of these headwinds and these storms that uh, we're looking at geopolitically and, you know, also uh, debt ceiling, as I mentioned, and, and some of the, the work that the Fed's, uh, that we've got to get through with the Fed and, and some of the economic numbers. But overall, the economy looks robust more so than people, um, some of the fear mongers want to say. So we're going to uh, be patient and, and ride this out through the worst six months and get ready for another, another big buy at the end of, uh, the, end of the worst months. Yeah, September, October time. We'll be watching that jobs data out Friday very carefully. David Harden, Jeff Hirsch, thank you both very much. Have a great day, guys. We'll see you soon. Uh, meantime, a couple of key meetings are taking place in California today. First, a group of lawmakers sitting down with tech and media executives over the next three days to discuss China-related topics. And, and we are moments away from a highly anticipated meeting between House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the president of Taiwan, out of all places, the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library out in Simi Valley. So to break it all down, Eamon Javers is with us in Washington, D.C. with what could be on the agenda and what it'll all mean for U.S. relations with China. Eamon. Hey, Dom. Well, we actually got that video just moments ago. We saw the arrival of Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen and Speaker Kevin McCarthy at that Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California. Take a look at the video that just fed in moments ago. This is an enormously fraught session today because the Chinese government has expressed its objection to such a high-level U.S. political visit with the leader of a country that the Chinese see as a breakaway state. This is the first high-level visit of this type since 1979. Now, the Taiwanese visit, though, is not an official state visit. That's due to the ambiguous nature, the intentionally ambiguous nature of U.S.-Taiwanese diplomatic relations. So this is being described simply as a transit of the United States by Tsai, not necessarily a visit. Uh, she is also expected to meet with a bipartisan group of more than a dozen lawmakers, including the top Republican and Democrat on the new House China Select Committee. The Chinese government says it sees this meeting as a provocation and has threatened to retaliate for it. Not clear exactly what they have in mind there. Uh, also today, members of that new China committee, chaired by Representative Mike Gallagher, will be meeting with Bob Iger of Disney, as well as top 
top Hollywood producers, screenwriters, and studio executives to discuss China and its influence over Hollywood. Tomorrow, that group will meet with Microsoft President Brad Smith and high-ranking executives from Google parent Alphabet, Palantir, and Scale AI, as well as with venture capitalists Mark Andreessen and Vinod Kosla. On Friday, the select committee members are expected to meet with Tim Cook of Apple, who himself just returned from a trip to China, where he attended meetings of the government-organized China Development Forum and posted pictures of himself touring an Apple store in Beijing. So a lot happening here, Dom, on the U.S.-China relations front, both di diplomatically and in the business sector. Okay, let's start with the diplomatic side first, Eamon. This is the first time that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has met with the Taiwanese president. The Taiwanese president had met with then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan, and that led to a very, very steep retaliation in, in the form of military exercises, live fire exercises from the likes of China. Are we expecting a similar type response because of this particular visit with our current House Speaker? Well, we don't know, but you did see that response to the uh, visit with Pelosi. You saw the Chinese Navy uh, moving positions uh, in and around Taiwan in response to that visit. Uh, as we look at this uh, video again of McCarthy and Tsai uh, at the Reagan Presidential Library, um, you can expect something from the Chinese, I would imagine. The U.S. side is urging the Chinese not to, quote, overreact to this meeting, but it's clear the Chinese are extraordinarily sensitive on the issue of Taiwan. Uh, they will want to respond to this in some way. It's just impossible now, Dom, to predict exactly what way they will decide to respond. All right. Eamon Javers with the latest on U.S.-China relations. Thank you very much. Coming up on the show, recent data, weaker jobs, lower input costs, showing that Fed rate hikes are doing their job. Maybe surprisingly so, but with two Fed presidents now calling for further increases despite the numbers, is a recession becoming, at this point, unavoidable? That story is coming up next. Plus, natural gas prices are seeing some relief today, but they're still hovering near their lowest levels since 2020. We'll speak with the head of the country's largest nat gas producer about that and what it'll take to stabilize some of those nat gas prices. And as we head out to break, let's get a check on the markets right now. Again, approaching some of those session lows. You can see the S&P 500 down about 19 points. We're down roughly 25, 26 of the lows of the session. The Dow is just about up 48 points. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 
Welcome back to the exchange. Recession warnings getting louder as more economic data comes in below expectations. On the heels of yesterday's disappointing jolts number, private payrolls today came in with a bigger than expected miss for the month of March, while the ISM services index fell to a three-month low and saw a contraction in prices paid. It's a leading indicator of wage growth. On top of all that, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester said last night that rates need to, quote-unquote, move a little bit higher. So are we on the road to a hard economic landing? Joining me now is Diane Swank, chief economist over at KPMG, also our very own Steve Leisman, to provide a little bit more of that context to the story. Steve, we'll start with you to lay things out for us. Economically speaking, are we, in fact, seeing the initial steps or tea leaves that indicate a bigger recession is coming? I don't think so, uh, uh, Dom. It's entirely possible. But when I think about landing a plane, you got to pass through 10,000 and 5,000 feet to get to the ground. And I I hate to use this metaphor, but, you know, it's kind of one about cooling versus crashing. Some of this stuff that I'm looking at is kind of a return to normal. Take the ADP. You know, who knows if it's right or wrong, but let's say it's 145,000. It's kind of what you would want more towards what you would want if you didn't have a hot economy. That's a pretty good number in and of itself. I had this sort of feeling, this flashback to normal times, Dom, when I was reporting the ADP this morning. Um, Take a look at supplier deliveries inside the ISMs or even prices paid. They're back down towards normal. I can't say, and I think the market, Dom, is the one that's really concerned about the stock market anyway, about this idea that we're, we're going to pass through cooling on the way to crashing. But right now, I think it's a little bit early to say the crash is inevitable. It's probably the reason why, Steve, markets are holding up the way that they are right now and not indicating crashing. But, yeah. Diane, if you look at some indicators out there, like yield curves and spreads between long-term and short-dated bonds and notes, it does indicate, perhaps, that things are due for a bit of a pullback and not just a normalization. So, Is the data suggesting right now that we could be seeing more signs of that, but to Steve's point, that it may not just be the dire economic situation that some are forecasting for? Well, I think the real issue is the economy has been remarkably resilient. And in the face of that resilience, the Fed has sort of doubled down, even through financial market fragilities and additional tightening in the pipeline, that they're going to continue to fight inflation and sort of try to divorce the idea of rate hikes from financial stability tools. And the two are inter- intertwined. You can't just divorce them. They don't, the breakup is not easy. And I think the real risk now is we've upped the ante that the Fed overshoot. I think another important issue for the Fed is a research st- study just came out from the Kansas City Fed that looked at the service sector that it's much less interest rate sensitive than other sectors, particularly in employment, which means the Fed believes it has to overshoot to get to that core service sector inflation, which is so worried about. And that sets the stage for, you know, this harder landing that Steve talked about. I call it cooling and slipping through the ice into, they don't want to send the economy into a deep freeze, but you're going to get a little more chill, I think, than you'd like. And you get a harder landing with the Fed continuing to fight inflation and the pipeline of tightening that we have in the credit system already. It's going to really hit those businesses that have been the backbone 
of the recovery and the resilience, and that is businesses with less than 250 employees. In those most recent job opening labor turnover surveys, job openings among businesses over 5,000 fell yet again. It's the smaller, younger businesses that have really been the resilience, and those are the ones that are gonna slowly feel a crunch in credit, and this is a sort of slow-moving train wreck, unfortunately, yeah. is how I see it. Uh, I mean, okay, so let's say that, that that's the case right now. Steve, we, we've had a lot of conflicting data, speaking of hard versus soft. The hard economic data, the stuff that we can measure, right, has been showing one thing. The softer economic data, sentiment surveys, that sort of thing, in the past year have been pointing towards slowdown, recession, and none of that's really come to fruition. I wonder, though, in this case here, how those sentiment gauges are playing out right now compared to what the hard economic data is showing. Yeah, Dom, that's a good observation. Uh, And to make that distinction, I think, is really important for investors to do. We'll take the ISM services today. It fell by, you know, it was three points, but it's still in an expansion mode, 51. And I don't know if you recall, Dom, earlier this week, I did the CNBC rapid update. What happened once again the weakness was shifted into future quarters. Um, I'm getting a little tired of this. I'll bet the forecasters themselves who we survey are getting a little tired of this. But we've been waiting for the consumer to give it up for quite a while. I, I, I know that everybody thinks of employment as a lagging indicator. But in this sense, I think it's at least coincident and maybe leading because one of the things that's powering the consumer are jobs and wages. And as long as those remain relatively resilient, And they don't need a lot, Dom, because if you think about, for example, the participation rate is relatively high, the unemployment rate is relatively low, a lot of the population is employed, has the wherewithal to spend, and there's two factors that are going on that, to me, is a race to figuring out what's going on. First is the idea, if inflation falls, wages and employment remain high, people will get real income increases, okay? On the other hand is the thing that Diane talked about, which is a major X factor in every survey that I read, which is the credit tightening. If that credit tightening really goes asymptotic in the sense that the, the, the numbers really start to, to come down, then you're going to have probably a much harder landing than even the most optimistic person can expect. Okay, so Diane, with that, with that in mind, you work for KPMG. That's a lot of audit and consulting relationships with a lot of different businesses of all different sizes. I'm sure that a lot of those clients ask you a lot of different questions. Thematically, what's the biggest concern that businesses in America have been approaching you with with regard to how things are going to play out in the next six to 12 months? Well, the most interesting thing is how much there's been a shift in what has been the biggest concern. The biggest concern was finding workers. And it still is a major concern but it's not the only concern now. And that's something that we've been surprised at. The other thing in our own inflation survey of C-suite individuals, which make decisions on both wages and on prices, even though they're not as concerned as they were about labor market shortages, they're all in on labor-saving technologies. And on the flip side of it, their expectations for inflation longer term have not come down and have been much more sticky than we would have expected given some of the consumer sentiment surveys that we've seen out there. And so the people who are making the decisions out there think this is more a structural labor market shortage and more persistent inflation no matter what kind of environment we have because we have harder borders, 
more geopolitical uncertainties. We've also got climate change, extreme weather events, and supply chain disruptions that haven't gone away. And so those things are the things that the Fed looks at and says, you know, they're hearing it as well from all the people they talk to. And that makes them worried that we're getting into a stickier inflation and them doubling down on averting the era of the 1970s and in doing so, perhaps creating a whole new mistake and overshooting, especially given their focus on service sector inflation, where they think it's less interest rate sensitive. It just gets more complex and complex. Diane Dar- Swank, Steve, OK, one last word really quickly. We got to we got to get out of here, Steve. Just real quick, just right right in your area, uh, Dom, which is the market has to puzzle over this. Less Fed, that's good. But if less Fed comes along with less economic growth, that's really the question that I think the market goes back and forth almost every day, sometimes every hour. All right. Agreement between Steve Leisman and Diane Swank at KPMG. Thank you both very much. We'll see you soon. Coming up on the show and speaking of the Fed, if they're hoping for prices to come down, they may want to look anywhere but the travel business. Seema Modi has that story and what it means for the economy if the rebound in travel and the prices we're paying high are here to stay. And as we head out to break, take a look at shares of Western Alliance. The stock had actually been halted after it cited deposit growth. It's back open and up here. You can see they're up by about 10%. Remember, just at the beginning of the show, it was down about 17%. So a spike higher in Western Alliance. It's still down 11%. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update up to the minute. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken concluding his time in Brussels with final rounds of sessions with NATO officials and international leaders. Blinken met with New Zealand's and Croatia's foreign ministers. While abroad, the secretary also took part in the 10th U.S.-EU Energy Council meeting where he emphasized continued U.S. support for Ukraine. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visiting Poland to meet with the country's leaders and Ukrainian refugees there. The Ukrainian president was also awarded the Order of the White Eagle, Poland's highest honor. During his visit, Poland has taken in millions uh, of Ukrainian refugees and provided vital weaponry to the Kyiv government as the fight against Russia's invasion continues. And back in the U.S., a group of colleges is challenging a class action settlement that could lead to student loans being canceled for hundreds of thousands of borrowers. On Wednesday, the colleges asked the Supreme Court to halt the case that could lead to $6 billion of student debt being forgiven. The case is unrelated to President Joe Biden's broader effort to forgive student loan debt, which is also currently before the justices, with a ruling due in the next two months. Dom, back to you, sir. All right, Tyler Matheson, thank you very much for those headlines. Up next on the show, energy seeing big gains this week, regaining its throne as the top performing sector in the S&P. We'll get a view from the C-suite with the head of the largest natural gas producer in America, EQT's Toby Rice, as well as the names to buy now with the stock picker track in that sector. The exchange is back after this.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's dive right into the energy market. Earlier this week, OPEC announced a surprise production cut of around 1.16 million barrels of crude per day starting in the month of May. The move sent oil prices sharply higher, crude up about 7% this week or so, making energy the best-performing sector during that span. And through the swings, though they've been kind of wild as of late, oil is basically, believe it or not, flat for the year. It's been a roller coaster ride. Nat gas, on the other hand, has fallen more than 50% since the start of 2023. Prices, by the way, hovering at their lowest level since September of 2020. So what's the next big deal big thing for the energy complex. We'll get the names to buy in both oil and gas with Tortoise Capital's Rob Thummel. Also, with the view from the top and the C-suite, EQT CEO Toby Rice. So, Toby, let's kick it off with you and look at the big picture for Nat Gas first. I'm not asking you to make a prediction on prices. I know that that's not what you do. I will take my time, rather, to ask about the structural state of Nat Gas in America Is this a time where you feel like you can keep producing more? Let's look at the structural state of American energy in context of what's going on on the world stage. You know, when we see issues, external factors like OPEC and how that influences prices and affects the energy security for Americans, it's easy for some to look at that and say the sun is setting on American energy independence. But when we look at and take stock at what we have in this country, we realize that the sun is setting on a renewed birth of American energy freedom. And that is gonna come in the form of natural gas. When you look at what this country can do, if we can unleash American energy, we will have the potential to add an amount of energy to the world stage that would be equivalent to adding a amount of energy equivalent to Saudi Arabia. It's a massive potential, but we need to make the choice to unleash American energy. And that will open up a new era of energy and energy security, not only for us as Americans, but for our allies around the world. I, I don't, Toby, I, I don't ever want to confuse oil with natural gas. I mean, they, they're part of the energy complex, but they're independent in some ways of each other. But we saw how sensitive the American public is to energy prices and food prices. We saw extreme evidence of that over the last year. Do you think that experience with those higher oil prices and higher food prices has given Americans a different perspective and maybe politicians and lawmakers a different perspective on how they treat energy prices in the future. Absolutely. I think you look at the chaos that was was set on the world stage with the disruptions that took place with Russia and you look back in 22 and realize what did the world learn? It learned that energy security matters and without energy security, Bad things happen like rampant inflation um, and also people's ability to transition um, falls flat and stops. And uh, the other important lesson is to look at where did the world turn for that energy security? They turned to American energy. They turned to U.S. LNG on the world stage. And if that's the solution for a lot of these issues, um, the good news is we've got the ability to do a, a whole lot more. And the amount of natural gas we have in this country, we can increase production over 50 percent. And that would allow us to quadruple our LNG exports. And like I said, that would be like adding a Saudi Arabia of clean energy to the world stage. And that would bring energy security back, not only for Americans, but for our allies around the world. Toby, what's the story around the use of natural gas as a a quote unquote transition fuel? There are a lot of folks out there, uh, regardless of what end of the political spectrum you're on, there is an evolution that will happen over the next several decades to clean energy. 
there is a movement away from hydrocarbons. Natural gas, while still kind of hydrocarbon-esque, is seen as a bridge or transition fuel. Is there a secular future for nat gas if that's the way it's treated? Well, when we look at the transition um, in context to emissions, let's understand where the biggest source of emissions on the planet is, and it's foreign coal. Coal emissions make up the significant portion of emissions in this world. Almost half of the emissions come from foreign coal. And we can use natural gas to replace those emissions uh, from coal. And the question is, how big of an opportunity is this? Uh, Foreign coal, it would take about 180 BCF a day of natural gas to replace foreign coal. Our plan to unleash American energy, unleash U.S. LNG, would be responsible for taking a massive bite of about 60 BCF a day out of that. Uh, That's going to take some time to put in place, but certainly it's going to secure the future of American natural gas for decades. And then when we pick our heads up, we realize that natural gas is probably the best energy source that's positioned to become the trifecta of energy, which is cheap, reliable, and zero carbon. And to make natural gas zero carbon, all we need to do is to pick up the tools and get carbon capture uh, working. And with that, natural gas will become a zero carbon energy solution. It is what the world has been looking for in this industry is going to deliver the cheap, reliable, zero-carbon energy source the world has been searching for. And it's going to be based on natural gas. Toby, before we let you go, I know this is a complex question, but your footprint for natural gas production is different than other natural gas and oil producers. You are predominantly here in the Northeast. We're talking Marcellus. We're talking kind of in the Appalachia region versus, say, some of the ones that we're talking about in Texas and Oklahoma. Is there a difference in terms of the way business is done with regard to the actual production of that nat gas in a geographic sense from where you're based versus where we are somewhere in the southwest? Well, regardless of where you are in America, America energy is the cleanest in the world. Um, specifically, though, there are there are better places and cleaner places in America. The best in America is, is coming from Appalachia. We've got some of the lowest greenhouse gas intensity production. Uh, As a perspective, um, the amount of our carbon footprint at EQT to produce the amount of energy we produce is about 400,000 tons of emissions. And when you think about the emissions reductions that we will receive when we put this natural gas on the water, we will have the potential to reduce emissions around the world by 180 million tons. So uh, our energy is clean, but clearly the focus needs to be on What are the emissions reductions when people use our product? And that's why we're saying the world needs more natural gas. And EQT is going to be a big uh, provider of that, if given the opportunity, if we can unleash American energy. It's certainly a big debate right now about the energy future of America. Toby, thank you very much, as always, for being here and sharing your thoughts. We appreciate it, sir. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, let's turn to Rob Thummel now with the best way to play some of the big names in energy. Rob, you just heard the interview from EQT and Toby Rice. Uh, the energy trade is not just Exxon and Chevron. There's ways to find alpha outperformance. What exactly then goes on the energy select list, if you will? Yeah, thanks, Dom. So we would agree with Toby that, that natural gas is, is going to play a huge uh, role going forward, both domestically and globally. Uh, in order to for, for the natural gas to play a bigger role, you need infrastructure, right? And so ways to play uh, natural gas and, and oil in general and the energy sector in, in particular is through energy infrastructure. So a company like uh, Chenier Energy, right? It's the largest exporter of, of U.S. liquefied natural gas uh, in the world. Uh, and, it's, and it's exporting liquefied natural gas all over the world. It's, it's, it's exporting some of that same natural gas to Toby and, 
and his colleague at EQT are producing, as well as other natural gas producers all over the country. So we expect U.S. LNG to, to that trade to actually grow, and for, for that's one area in energy where you're going to see a lot of growth. Another stock uh, is a company like uh, Energy Transfer. Once again, another energy infrastructure play. It's a pipeline company that operates basically all sorts of energy pipelines, oil, natural gas, natural gas liquids pipelines. It's got a, almost a double-digit dividend yield for investors. It's written, uh, it increased its dividend last year. Um, it's probably going to increase its dividend this year. Um, this infrastructure is really critical. It's really essential, especially as the U.S. becomes more and more critical and, and essential to providing both domestic energy, but also energy to the rest of the world. All right. Now, okay, so we've got infrastructure pipeline providers. What's the outlook in your mind for straight up exploration and production companies, oil and gas, E&P? Do you look towards the major integrateds like Chevron and Exxon, or do you look for more pure play, smaller players like perhaps an EOG and APA or others? Yeah, that's a good question. So what I would say is, in general, if you just look at across all the sector, the, the, the stocks that we like are, are, are those that have high free cash flow yields that are that are returning cash to shareholders. Uh, essentially, almost all of the companies in the, in the energy sector are doing that right now. Um, when, when you look at the opportunities, though, within the producers, Chevron is, is an excellent opportunity. It's got a, a very high dividend yield relative to the S&P 500. Um, when, when you look at where, where the growth is coming from in the U.S., we need more U.S. oil and gas production. Oil is being produced out of the Permian Basin, and, it, and, and the Permian Basin is growing in terms of its production. Chevron is leading the way there along with Exxon in growing oil production out of the Permian Basin. But a lot of these energy companies, including Chevron, are doing other things as well along the energy transition to, to, to help decarbonize or reduce carbon emissions. So that could be uh, producing biofuels or looking at carbon capture or even looking at hydrogen longer term. And so when you look at one of the majors like Chevron and Exxon, they're doing basically uh, and all of the above approach, which we think is, is really going to be the solution um, for the energy sector over the long term. And, and just before we let you go, Rob, you, you have to make certain assumptions about oil and gas prices with regard to making some of these calls. What exactly is the outlook for oil for you? Yeah, so, so oil's right around $80 today in, in the short term. We, we think that the demand for oil is going to accelerate in the second half of the year. The, the world actually is going to consume more oil than it ever has in 2023, ever in, in, in history. So we expect oil prices as demand accelerates in the second half of the year, really led by China. We, we would we'd expect oil prices to increase, probably be around $85 plus or minus five bucks for the rest of the year, which that, that's actually a win-win for, for the producer and the consumer. You know, the consumer won't see sky high gas prices, gasoline prices like we saw last year, this time last year. Um, but it's also a, a, a good level where producers um, can also make some money and return that money to the to the shareholders as well. And, and as well as reinvest in in uh, new exploration and, and production for the future. All right. Rob Thumla, Tortoise Capital. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. All right. Still ahead on the show, regional banks getting beaten up again today. First Republic shares are down about four percent on the session so far. How the ongoing stress in that sector has small businesses rethinking regional banking and what that means for their bottom lines. That story is coming up next. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's not just the wealthy moving their deposits out of banks. Small business owners are also rethinking their relationship with their regional banking partners. Kate Rogers joins us now with the recent bank failures and how they are impacting Main Street America, especially the quote-unquote backbone of the American economy in that small business. Kate. 
Hey, Dom. Well, in the wake of the collapse of those two regionals, it seems that some small business owners, as you mentioned, are now kind of taking a closer look at their banking relationships. It is evident that money's being moved in data from the Fed through the week ending March 22nd that shows a drop-off in deposits held at smaller banks since the SVB collapse. Now, the Consumer Bankers Association represents many of the regional banks across the country, as well as the large national banks, says that while there have been withdrawals, the end result has been matched with inflows. The message from CBA CEO is that movement has come down in recent weeks and regionals are really working to maintain those relationships with small business owners. Take a listen. Banks across the country, including regional banks, are well capitalized. They've got adequate liquidity. They are they've been planning for a changing economy for two plus years. And so they are ready for whatever's next. I've spoken with several business owners who say they're being impacted now in varying ways. One was turned down for a loan from a community bank that would have been a no-brainer in the past, but it was the week after the SVB collapse. Another told me that he'd be splitting his deposits between two regionals now so as to not hit that $250,000 FDIC cap for insured funds. What is of note here, Dom, is that these owners are still telling me they're leaning in to staying with the banks on the community and regional level versus moving their money and deposits to one of the larger banks. I thought that was interesting. It's absolutely interesting only because for many of these small businesses, it's those regional bank lending officers that know the economy and the local mm-hmm. business climate better than anyone else. So, so what is the leading or lending environment looking like right now for some of these small business owners, given that backdrop of perhaps tightening credit conditions? Yeah, so it definitely remains to be seen how this all shakes out. And we're going to hear from the NFIB on Tuesday on the lending front when their data comes out. But we do have new data from the National Small Business Association that shows more than half of their respondents said they weren't able to obtain adequate financing in the weeks after SVB. A third also said that terms had become less favorable, but only 9% said that new challenges have arisen post-collapse. So perhaps there were some of these issues already in play. They talked to more than 500 owners for this survey. We're definitely going to continue to be in touch with owners on the ground and bring anything we hear, Dom. Back over to you. All right. Thank you very much, Kate Rogers, for everything there on the small business front. Uh, Speaking of the banks, I want to quickly add a little more color to what we showed you with the Western Alliance story. Now, the bank is saying now at the end of the quarter, its deposits were $47.6 billion. So it's now giving us the actual number compared to what it was at $53.6 billion at the end of 2022. Western Alliance then went on to say that since March 20th, deposit balances have stabilized and grown approximately 900 million to the quarter end. So those shares, remember, at the top of the show, we're down about 17, 18 percent. We're still down about 12 percent now. But that's the reason why you saw that kind of tick higher intraday. It was because Western Alliance then came out and gave us the actual number for deposits that moved the stock. Well, still ahead on the show, despite the uncertainty, discretionary is holding up, including travel shares. Both Marriott and Hilton are up about 9% this year, but is the end of so-called revenge spending on travel? Nigh. That's next. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. If you're planning a summer trip this time around, you've probably noticed that prices are still pretty darn high. Sima Modi is here with the details of why, how, what, 
What is going on? Well, Dom, this is the year that Americans are expected to travel overseas. Well, it's going to cost you airfare for an international round trip now over $1,000, up 30% from last year, according to Hopper. A seven-night cruise in April now going for $830 versus the $650 you would have spent a year ago. Latest channel checks by Morgan Stanley shows that not only is demand robust, but customers on cruises are opting for higher-priced cabins. Analysts at Morgan Stanley forecasting Royal Caribbean to outperform Carnival and Norwegian Cruise Line this year. But there are some parts of the travel market that are starting to crack. Car rental prices, for example, surging last year due to the shortage, now tracking 15% lower than 2022 levels. Vacation rental prices have also moderated. Deutsche Bank analyst Lee Horowitz now forecasting Airbnb to deliver a softer guide for the second quarter. Hotels are still commanding pricing power. That's really being led by the vacation hotspots like Maui and Florida Keys. But the average occupancy numbers across the nation also starting to soften post the spring break craze. All right, Tom. Seema Modi, thank you very much. That's the current state of play here for travel. Uh, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about this. If vacancies are actually ticking up, does this signal the end of reven- revenge travel spending? We're going to bring in Kevin Kopelman, Managing Director and Senior Analyst over at TD Cowan. Uh, Kevin, it, it appears as though the prices that we're seeing are actually leading to a dent in demand. Is that what you're seeing as well? Oh, we're not we're not seeing that exactly. I think it's important to point out that lodging pricing is market driven. These hotels are charging what people are willing to pay. And just to put it into context, hotel prices in the U.S. right now are up about 15 to 20 percent versus 2019. And that's actually right in line or even a little bit below inflation in the overall economy. Um, So, sure, if you look at specific destinations like maybe Miami, you're going to see higher. But overall, it's right in line with overall inflation. And that's just what what travelers are willing to pay. In terms of revenge travel, um, the the nights in the U.S. and Europe right now, they're right around where they were in 2019. So we didn't see a huge wave of growth over 2019 levels. We only recovered to around where we were. Uh, And then it's been stable. And that's been the story for several quarters. And everything we're seeing right now is that it's continuing to be a little bit stable. There was a little bit of signs of softness earlier in March, but the second half of March has been totally fine. Okay, so with that in mind, then, are there certain places that are positioned better from an investor perspective right now? Is it the airlines straight up? Is it the cruise line operators, hotel operators? Maybe people are going to go back to Airbnbs. Sure. So. I cover uh, hotels and online travel stocks. I want to focus on those. Um, our favorite out of that group is Airbnb because we believe the trend towards vacation rentals is continuing. Um, travelers are just uh, really liking that vacation type. They want to stay in a home, especially if they're with their family or, or, or a larger group. So we see that trend continuing and think they're going to benefit. And overall, we do like uh, we do like the travel stocks as a group because we think they are reasonably priced. And as of right now, while there's a lot of macro uncertainty, the numbers have been solid. And we think if we're able to avoid a a large uptick in the unemployment rate, we think people have travel high on the priority list and they're going to continue to take those trips. Okay. And before we let you go, there was a reason why Airbnb shares took a huge hit last year. There was supply concerns, too many people coming on board to put vacation rentals on their own. Is that still a concern? And if it's not, maybe that's the reason why the stock is already up like 30 plus percent so far this year. That was a big part of the story. It certainly traded with some of the larger, more expensive tech stocks uh, last year. 
Uh, it's come down in valuation. And really, they came out and let people know their supply is accelerating. Again, it's market-driven. Um, travelers are, are looking for these homes, and homeowners and people with second homes and investors are are leaning into that and listing on Airbnb, and it's the leader in the market. So I think that's a huge part of the story. All right. Kevin Kopelman, TD, thank you very much. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you. All right. That does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.